Uh, So we are continuing our study in Ecclesiastes. This is exactly halfway through our study, and we are moving into chapter 3. And so here's here's what I want uh, to consider this morning. Uh, As human beings, and I think especially as those that live in an American culture, it's fairly safe to say that we struggle with tension, meaning we don't like how life is this mixed bag of both and, That, that life includes both sadness and brokenness and beauty and joy, love and loss, victory and defeat, achievement, success, as well as suffering and pain and failure. If we're honest, we largely just want one side of the equation. We just want the good. We want the positive. And so we don't like the tension of living in both. And here's the booger about tension. It can be used for very good things, like a tension in the strings of a tennis racket allow Roger Federer to do amazingly beautiful things on a tennis court. If you're more of a Nadal fan, I'm sorry. I don't understand that. But (laughs) if you tension in a guitar makes beautiful music, tension in the cables of a bridge hold it up and allow us to travel over rivers. But tension can also be destructive. Too much tension in a rubber band and it snaps. Too much tension in a guitar string and it breaks. Too much weight and tension on a bridge and it falls. And so tension can both be destructive, but can also be constructive and create something very beautiful. And Ecclesiastes poetically confronts us with this both and and causes us to consider how, what do we do with that tension in life? What do we do with the both and? How are we wrestling through that? How are we responding to that? See, like seasons in nature, life encompasses a whole range of experiences. Life is never just one thing. It's continually both and. There is continually tension. And the preacher isn't just making an observation. He isn't just saying, hey, this is how life is, and we sit back and go, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's that way. He's, he's bringing it into focus, and so we can ask some hard questions, We can come to grips with that and look at how we respond to those things and ask ourselves, is the tension creating something beautiful in my life or am I responding to it in a way that's destructive? Or maybe to consider it another way. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. So underneath the preacher's observation, there is this implication that living wisely is knowing how to respond in the different seasons of life. Wisdom is entering into a particular season and responding appropriately. And so the first step to wisdom is that we have to recognize that life is both and. The first step to experiencing something good and beautiful in the midst of tension is to recognize, hey, this is the way life is. Life as a human being means navigating these seasons. Foolishness comes when we try to avoid them when we try to stiff-arm one season and only try to stay in one, or if we improperly respond to a season when we're laughing when we should be weeping or mourning when it actually is a time to laugh. And so when we stiff-arm these things, when when we sort of hold back the seasons, here's what we end up doing. Think of it this way. We end up cutting off our humanity. Because if, the, if what the preacher is describing is the whole of human experience, if we just want to live in one particular season, what we're essentially saying is, I don't want to live fully human. 
I only want one part of my experience as a human. And so we end up cutting off our humanity. And so what the preacher is bringing us back around to understand is, hey, live fully as a human. Wisdom means embracing all of life as a human being. And so that's what we're going to consider this morning. What does it mean to live life as fully human? And so here are the three things, because I've noticed the past few, few weeks, I haven't really done this kind of breakdown into three points, but Ecclesiastes is sometimes kind of hard to like, find a clear path through, and so I'm going to try to bring a little bit more structure here. So we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at the times and seasons that he describes. We're going to look at how we can respond, and then we're going to look at our hope in the midst of sort of the both and of life. So times and seasons. In verse 1, The preacher writes, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. In other words, life is much more like seasons in the Midwest than in the South. And there's quite a few of you in here in the South, and some of you have actually spent some time in the Southwest. Here in the Midwest, we have the full range of seasons. We have summer, winter, spring, and fall, and even those seasons are incredibly unpredictable, as the past month has shown us. I mean, we've spent this past week kind of in the middle of that Guns N' Roses song's cold November rain, and it's May. And so we live in this full range of unpredictable weather, and it changes as the seasons go. For those of you that grew up in the South, you have like mild and hot, or hot and really hot. And some of you, I know, have spent some time suffering for Jesus in Hawaii, and where every day is like 80 degrees and sunny. So I don't even know what you do with seasons there. It's just kind of like 80 or 90 or really beautiful and kind of beautiful. I don't know. But the preacher is describing seasons that reflect change, reflect that there is a range of experience. It is unpredictable. And this is how human experience is for us. And in verses 2 through 8, there is this relentless poetic beauty to these verses. There's change, and this cycle and this change keep coming and coming and coming. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And so he's just giving us this full range of experience and just in this very beautiful language of sort of the cyclical nature of this keeps coming and change. Just when you think it's one thing, it changes to the next. And all of these things are part of human experience. Now, verses two through eight have somewhat of a thematic link. If you look at each verse has a pair of couplets there. And so if we were to sort of break down some of what the the themes that are running through verses two through eight, the born die, plants pluck. This idea is that life begins and life ends. We are born and we will die. And so in an agricultural society, which this, this text was largely written to, is understood, hey, we plant crops at the beginning and then eventually we harvest them. And so there's a beginning to that plant life and then there's a harvesting and an end. And so there's an entire cycle to life, beginnings and endings. There's a book end. Life, for all of its experiences, has these markers, the beginning and the end. Kill and heal, break down, build up within the scope of life. And there's a time for constructive action and a time for destructive action. Again, if you want to use the agricultural metaphor, those of you that have taken care of livestock ever had this experience. I have to have this sick cow and I have to nurse it back to health 
only to one day kill it for food? Or just the, the way life works, that there is going to be times where we experience healing and we need to build towards that. You know, buildings, sometimes buildings and bridges and walls and different construction need to be just replaced. Sometimes you can fix them, but sometimes they need to be torn down. Weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing, life includes a full range of emotions. Crying and laughing, mourning and dancing. The idea here, so weep, laugh, is very personal. Mourning and dancing is very corporate. We do this together. There are things that elicit laughter and celebration, like birthdays and graduations and weddings and well-timed jokes and just sitting around and enjoying time with friends and telling stories. But there are also things that elicit sadness and mourning, illness and funerals and loss of jobs and failures. We do not exist in one emotional state. And have you ever noticed that those people who do, they're kind of hard to be around? Like if you're just on one emotional plane, it's hard to be around you. I'm just going to admit that. Casting stones and gathering stones, embrace and frame from embrace. This, this casting stones, gathering stones is kind of a vague illusion, but in this culture, one way that you showed that you were kind of opposing somebody is you threw rocks in their field because it made it hard for them to like harvest. And so I'm going to throw stones in your field to let you know, hey, I'm against you, I oppose you. But a sign of friendship, a sign of embracing someone is I'm going to go pull all the rocks out of your field to make planting easier. And so there is a time where we embrace people, we love one another, we move towards each other in friendship and camaraderie. Other times we have to draw a line in the sand and draw a boundary between us and other people. Seeking and losing, keeping and casting away. We seek after our dreams, we seek after knowledge, we pursue goals, careers, but sometimes we have to let things go. We have to move on. We can pursue possessions, we can earn, and we can build a life for ourselves, but sometimes we lose things. Sometimes we have valuable items that we misplace, and we search, and we search, and we search, and we have to let go. I lost it. And there's a time we just have to accept that. There's a time where all the things that we've built, the wealth and the possessions, there's a time to let those go. And so in some ways, the preacher says in these verses, don't be a hoarder, y'all. You gotta let go sometimes of the things that we have. Tearing and sewing, silence and speaking. So tearing clothes in this culture was a sign not only of lament, but protest. Like if I rip my clothes, I'm not just like sad, but it's also something very bad has happened or I'm expressing deep emotion. It's outrage. I'm I'm expressing myself strongly and there's a time to do that. There's a time to speak out. There's a time to express, but there's also a time to keep silent, to keep our mouths shut, to listen And then love and hate and war and peace. Well, there is a time for us to love what is good and true and beautiful. And there is a time to hate evil and injustice. There's a time to take action against those things. And there's a time that war is necessary to address injustice. There's other times where peace needs to be pursued. And so the preacher lays out for us a very robust, diverse, varied experience and as Zach Eswine puts it, describing this, this passage, he says, the preacher tells us life will include disquiets and delights. I like that. Disquiets, things that will upset and trouble us, and delights, things that will please us. And here's what's humbling. We have little control over when these things happen to us. I mean, we can control some of it, but largely 
we have little control over when the delights and disquiets come. Just like the seasons of nature, we can't control when the seasons are going to change. We can't control when seasons change in our life. As much as we'd like to, we can't. And so the question becomes for us, how are we going to respond? How are we going to walk wisely, acknowledging that these things are going to come? And we can't avoid them. We can't control them. So in verses 9 through 13, we get a little bit of a reflection into how the preacher is trying to respond and wrestle out this notion that these seasons come. And so he writes, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So in verse 9, the preacher asks, what is there to be gained navigating all of these seasons? As I work through all of these seasons, what is to be gained? What do, what do I get? What's the point when I work through all of the complexity of life? Then in verse 10, he says, sometimes it seems that life is just a cycle. God has given us this business to occupy ourselves with. Ever felt that frustration that life is just seems this endless business that you just have to work yourself through, you have to get through. And it seems like the next thing comes and the next thing comes and the next thing comes and it's just busyness, busyness, busyness all the time. And so he feels a little bit like a man on a hamster wheel. The seasons have me spinning, the seasons have me working and going and going. And then in the midst of that, this is where that sense of lack of control creeps in. Like, man, life has got me. What do I do with it? I can't control it. And then in verse 11, the preacher engages in a little philosophical and theological reflection. He says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. The word beautiful there also means appropriate. He's made everything appropriate in its time. And so the, the, the preacher's sort of thinking back and going, hey, everything sort of has a purpose. I can get that. Everything is appropriate in its time. Okay, so he's philosophizing and theologizing through what life is. And so he, he sort of sees, okay, everything has a purpose. Life has, there's these different meaning for different things. Okay, that's a nice thought. But then the second part of this verse says that God put eternity in our hearts, but then we can't find out what he's up to. So he starts to philosophize and theologize and think through life. And he, he recognizes, hey, I have this yearning inside to know and to wrestle through what's going on, but I can't understand what God's up to. And so for all of his thinking and reflecting and philosophy and theology, he bumps up against darkness. He bumps up against limitation. And he's frustrated. He's frustrated that he can observe what's going on in life, but when he tries to make sense of it all, when he tries to peel back and see the meaning and purpose of what God is up to, he can't. And it frustrates him because he's got this desire to do just that. And so moving from this sense of, hey, I can't figure it out, it's better for man just to give himself to work. Hey, be joyful, work hard, do the best you can, and enjoy your toil, enjoy the fruits of your labor, eat and drink. And so he, he turns from trying to make sense of it through theology and philosophy and thinking and just says, hey, the proper response is just work. Just get to work, do the best you can, and enjoy what you can. And in some, some ways, as we're going to see, that's, that's good. That's good advice. That's wisdom there. But here's how 
we often do this. Here's here's what happens, because in in our pursuit of joy, in our pursuit of just doing the best we can, in in the pursuit of eating and drinking and, and trying to find pleasure, our way of doing that typically involves cutting off part of our experience. We think, I have to keep part of my experience at bay if I'm going to be joyful and happy and do the best I can. And so here's how this often comes out of us. For some of us, it's through control. We try to so order and control our lives as to keep the mess and the sin and the pain and the frustration out. We only want the one side. So here, here's, this, is, this is more of a cultural thing, and this is kind of a thought. This isn't, I'm not necessarily making any you know, direct pronouncements here, but here's what's kind of interesting for us in our, our world with so much technological advancement and, and, and even especially in like medical science and medical technology. Like recently, you may have seen this in the news, like they, they created this artificial womb where they, they put a sheep in. And, and the implications of that for premature babies is fantastic in that we can save life. But here's what we do as human beings. We take something, this wonderful gift of common grace, and we begin to use it in such a way that we begin to detach from both God and our humanity. And it's almost like something right out of the book, uh, Brave New World, if you read that in high school or college, where where we're moving more and more, and if you look at like even genetic testing and the ability to manipulate babies in the womb, we're becoming more and more where human beings aren't procreated, they're made. And they're made in such a way that we're trying to genetically engineer them so they don't have certain ailments and certain diseases and certain weaknesses. And so our ability to control, well, there's a lot of good in that technology. And I'm not saying, hey, throw that technology out. But us and our sinful desire to control and not want to live in a world of suffering, we begin to move further and further away from being human beings. But let's drop this down a little bit further into our lap because most of us aren't going to go and try to create human life like Frankenstein in a lab. Our control is going to look more like how we navigate our jobs and our families, how we seek to control the mess and the pain in our job and in our families. How we want one particular season in the family. We want the success. We want the good. We want everybody to do and get in line with our agenda. And same thing at work, but we don't want the brokenness. And so here's what we do. We wear ourselves out and we wear other people out with our control. Like I don't want death. I don't want to have to tear things down. If I'm going to have conflict with people, it's going to be so I can either steamroll them or get them in line. And so we seek to control the seasons. Or we can become quite pessimistic. Everything's terrible. Everything's horrible. And so we, we go to outrage. We go to anger. We go to lament and self-pity. We see this, the, uh, the wonderful world of social media, right, uh, is just this outrage system. Like it's so easy just to be outraged about stuff and just I'm going to put my outrage on Twitter or Facebook or some picture on Instagram. Instagram seems a little bit happier place than Twitter and Facebook sometimes. But that, that our culture, and, and not, just, not just in social media, but, but in politics and, and on college campuses and, and the way people engage, there's this more and more, it's like we're becoming unhinged. And I wonder if that's because we're pessimistic about the nature of the world right now, and so we just see the negative. And it's also because we feel a little bit out of control. Like, I can't control the bad, and so I'm just going to express my anger and express my outrage. 
So we get into this pessimistic, self-pitying, lamenting way of going about things. And so we're always in this place of tearing our robe. We're always in this place of speaking. We're always in this place of emotional just intensity and outburst, and we've lost what it means to be silent and to wait and to be patient and to trust and to hope. And for us who call on Christ, we can turn God's sovereignty into sort of this cold theological system as if we aren't engaging the living God who has entered into a covenant with his people and just engaging this impersonal force like out of Star Wars. And so we see in in these verses, this is what the preacher says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. He's just talking about God's control here. And he's doing it in this way that, hey, God's just up there doing his thing and we can't do anything about it. And oh, well. And so we engage the Lord as this cold, impersonal force in our pessimism. And miss, as we just sung this morning, yes, God is sovereign, but he's a good, good father. So we, some of us control, some of us are pessimistic, some of us indulge. We want the pleasure, but we don't want to endure any pain we want to laugh, and we want to dance. Uh, we want to keep, we want to pluck. Uh, we, we only want the pleasure of sex, but we don't want the blood, sweat, and tears of marriage. Like We want the college degree, but we don't want to study and work hard to get it. We want the promotion, but we don't want to put in the work. We don't want to have to work our way up. Like we just want pleasure. We want what we want now. I mean, we're an impatient society, right? If we have to wait two minutes at McDonald's, we start tapping our foot and getting upset. I'm sorry, if you don't go to McDonald's, then pick, pick some place that's more your flavor. But we, we want pleasure, we want it right now. And so we, we organize our lives, we, we pursue what pleases us, what makes us happy, and we try to avoid pain as much as possible. Yeah, sometimes we do this to numb. We seek pleasure to numb, but, but it's, it's probably more about, hey, I want the good life, and, and I recognize that life is painful and hard, and, and there's a degree to which I don't want to experience that, and so I'm going to do everything I can to push that away, but we miss that there is a season for those things. And so in our pursuit of pleasure and avoidance of pain, here's what happens. We are reduced to our base impulses, cut off our humanity, because we reduce ourselves to basically our desire for food and our desire for sex and pleasure. I mean, Christians, we, we get all a huff about evolution and materialism and Darwinian thought being taught in public schools, but we functionally sometimes live as materialists and evolutionists because we just think we're animals. Hey, sex and pleasure, food, that, that's, that's what I'm after. I'm just after pleasure. I've reduced my life to animalistic tendencies. When we avoid seasons in life, this is how we begin to crush our humanity and shrink our humanity. And so laughter, yeah, there's a laughter that comes deep within the soul because it's experienced all of life. It's experienced pain and victory. It, there, there's, a, there's a profound laughter that comes out of us sometimes that is far different 
than the juvenile laughter of like Beavis and Butthead. Some of y'all don't know about Beavis and Butthead because you're a little too young for that, but there was a show when I was in high school and there's these two juvenile dudes that just watched music videos all day. And they had this really, they both had stupid laughs. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But that type of laughter is juvenile, it's shallow. It comes from just the self-indulgent mockery of the world. That's much different than a laughter that comes from a deep joy. There is dancing that is a deep expression of life and celebrating life and all of its components. That's far different than the shallow, the shallow dancing that you do up in the club. You know, so there's a depth here of pleasure that we can experience. There's a depth to our responding to the good things of life that comes only when we experience what is negative, what is painful, what is hard. I mean, we truly learn to enjoy when we experience both seasons. So how do we get there? What, what is our hope? How, how do we move away from control and pessimism and indulgence into something deeper? How do we walk in wisdom? How do we not be like those who wear shorts when it's 20 degrees out or wear a parka when it's 100 degrees out? That's not walking in wisdom according to the season, right? How do we walk in wisdom according to the seasons? How do we reorient our hearts to the Lord and to wisdom? Well, as Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Starting with the Lord, starting with who he is and who we are is the way that we properly orient ourselves to the seasons, to walk in wisdom. And so let's work back through the preacher's response. When he says, he has made everything beautiful in its time, also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So first, we need to recognize God has a purpose for these seasons, and not just in this sort of like detached, like, okay, everything has a purpose, but in a, hey, there's actually a purpose to the seasons. Like, they, there's a reason that they're in my life, and God is at work in them. He's up to something in bringing those seasons to me. And so when we see that there's purpose, the word beauty there doesn't just become some shallow or something we just kind of gloss over, but we actually say, hey, the arc of history, the arc of God's purposes in the world is towards beauty. It's beauty in creation, beauty in his work in our lives. And so this should give us hope. This gives us purpose. This gives us the ability to endure whatever season comes. So to to help us see this, I want to look at a passage from Romans 8, because I think in many ways, Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote Romans 8, probably had Ecclesiastes in mind, and I'll tell you why I think that in a second. So Romans 8, 18 through 25, this is what he writes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." 
Here's why I think Paul at least somewhat has Ecclesiastes' mind in this passage. That groaning, that futility, the words that he uses are linguistically linked to vanity and striving after the wind. Like the same angst that is expressed by the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes It's the same words Paul is using here to talk about the groaning and the frustration that we feel. He talks about creation locked in a season of both good and bad, of both frustration and joy. I mean, he's acknowledging what is. He's acknowledging the pain and the struggle and the frustration that we feel. And he's saying creation is groaning. The earth, the world is groaning to be set free from these seasons and these cycles. And not only creation, we ourselves are. And so there is a deep longing in our hearts. There is a deep desire to be set free from the pain and the endless cycle of these seasons. And he says, but in this we hope. In this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So in the hope, what, what hope we were saved? The hope that one day creation and we will be set free from this frustration and futility. We were saved. The gospel says that if you are in Jesus Christ, your salvation includes this being set free. What Jesus Christ accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection was to set free creation from futility and brokenness and sickness and disease. Us as well, but all of creation And that's the hope that we have. And he says, because we have that hope, we patiently wait. We patiently endure. We patiently engage these seasons. And then then 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 is one of my favorite verses, and it's one you're probably very familiar with. But here's what is unfortunate about it. It often gets quoted by itself. And we we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You probably heard that verse by itself. All things work together for good. But what comes after it is very important because it's very specific about what kind of good God is at work in our lives. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The good that God is working in your life, bringing all things, all seasons together, the good that he is accomplishing is to conform you into the image of Christ. It's not just this vague, hey, everything works together for my good. It's very specific. You are going to become more and more like Jesus. He's transforming you into something beautiful. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The seasons are up to something beautiful because at the end of those seasons is your glorification. The end of those seasons, if you are in Jesus Christ, if you've been justified, is turning you into something beautiful, turning you into something that looks more and more like Jesus. And so we embrace the seasons because we know that this is what God is up to. They have a purpose in our glorification. And so the seasons encompass both good and bad, life and death. And we see in Christ, who is the most fully alive human to ever walk this earth. How did he engage the seasons? Oh, he enjoyed the good gifts of creation. He said he came eating and drinking. He enjoyed all that life had 
And he embraced all of the seasons, both victory over evil and sickness and sin. We see Jesus accomplishing much and much victory in his ministry. But he also submits himself to evil and sin when it was time for him to be crucified. And in that horrific, sinful, ugly moment, this is man torturing and murdering God himself. We see something beautiful being accomplished. The salvation of his people. The setting free and restoration of his creation. The defeat of evil and oppression and injustice. Something very ugly and horrific God was using to bring about something very beautiful. And so you and I can ask, how can the horrific and ugly and gross and sinful and painful things in our life ever come to something beautiful? Well, we look to Christ. We look to the gospel. This is what it means to be gospel-centered. It's not just a nice label. It actually drops into our lap and informs how we live and how we view what's going on in our life. And so God making all things beautiful, even in the midst of ugly seasons, look, it's a promise to rest in, not a puzzle to solve. And so in light of this hope, here's, here's what this frees us to do. Rather than buck against our limitations and our lack of understanding, rather than buck against the both-and seasons of life we cannot control, how about we start by accepting our limitations? How about, how about we start by saying, hey, I don't have to know everything and control everything. Here's another way to put it. It's okay to be human. It's okay to be limited. It's okay to not know everything and control everything. You can walk in righteousness and holiness and godliness. You can see truth and beauty and goodness, being human and limited and frail. And so we need to come to grips with that. We need to be okay being limited. We need to be okay being human. And when we feel our limitations, when we wrestle with that frustration, when we feel that pain, it's right there, right in that moment that God wants you to encounter his grace. He wants you to experience something deep about his grace. And here's what happens when we, we stiff arm we miss out on an experience of God's grace. Like, think of this. Think of your deepest friendships, the people that you are the tightest with. What kind of experiences have you had with them? You've had good experiences with them. Like I think of my closest friends, and we've had times where we've just laughed together, we've enjoyed experiences together, we've done things together. There's this great times of fun and enjoyment together. But they're also the people that I've wept with, I've suffered with, I've even gotten fights with people that I've had a full range of human experience with. And it's the same thing with God's grace. If you want to experience the fullness and the depth of God's grace, then we embrace these seasons. Because in each season, God has something else to teach you, some other aspect of his grace he wants you to experience. And so we experience the depth and the fullness of God's grace when we enter into these seasons, when we accept our limitations, when we're okay being human. There's a unique blessing to being human and that we get to experience the grace of God in these seasons and we get to put that grace on display. We get to experience it in a unique way that we will not when we get to heaven. 
Here's, here's how Francis Schaeffer puts it. According to the Bible, we are to be living a supernatural life now, in this present existence, in a way we shall never be able to do again through all eternity. We are called upon to live a supernatural life now by faith. Eternity will be wonderful, but there is one thing heaven will not contain, and that is the call, the possibility, and the privilege of living a supernatural life here and now by faith before we see Jesus face to face. This is the demonstration that God intends in the world until Christ returns. And it is the Christian who is to be the demonstration. Christians are called upon to be a demonstration at our point in history that the supernatural, the normally unseen world does exist, and beyond that, that God exists. They are to do this individually and corporately, each generation of Christians to their own generation. We live as humans when we embrace the seasons, when we embrace our humanity, God's grace and his power work through us. And we put on display something far greater than our control, something far greater than our pessimism and our outrage, something far greater than our indulgence. In church, those of you who call upon the name of the Lord, those in your neighborhoods, those in your families, those in your jobs, those that you know who do not know Christ, one of the best gifts that you can give to them is to show them what it means to be a human with limitations. To show them what it means to be weak so that God can work through you and you can extend grace. And so this is missional, church. This is missional in the way that living as a human puts the power of the gospel on display. It puts our hope more in focus when we don't act like we need to control things, when we're okay being broken, when we can embrace both weeping and laughing Tearing and sowing, we embrace both life and death, building up and tearing down. And what this means is that in our work, in our families, in our relationships, we don't need to control. We can get to work, we can work hard, but we're not working to try to control every little thing in our life. We can do what we can do and give the rest to the Lord. We can embrace the seasons of hardship and know that God has brought those for a reason. And so when they come, we embrace to learn and experience God's grace. We don't have to try to avoid them. And we also love people well in this. When they're in a season of suffering, we, we respond wisely to that season. When they're in a season of pain, we respond wisely. When they're in a season of rejoicing and laughing, we respond wisely to that as well. And so being human, accepting our limitations, understanding that God is at work to bring beauty, God is at work to bring restoration, even in the midst of the frustration of the seasons, this gives us hope, this gives us freedom, and allows us to put the power of God on display.